Christ wants to come into business. He wants to be a light there. And we need to be a voice for, for God there to say, in business, we can serve people and we should serve people. And in fact, we'll make more money by doing so in the long run. And when you don't serve people in business, when you're exploitative of others, then you can lose the, you will lose the trust of others and you will become somebody, something of a God. You start to think of yourself as a God. You start to put yourself above other people and then you can start censoring them and dehumanizing them. What role do entrepreneurs play in salvation history? How can industry disruption and innovation be put to the service of the kingdom of God? And how do we prepare for the inevitable slings and arrows that come when we stand for Christ in secular settings? On this week's episode, startup founder, investor, and operator Peter Rex shares a remarkable journey of an epiphany that led to his singular mission of serving humanity through business. We got to incarnate the word, right? The word's got to become flesh, you know, because if it doesn't, none of the stuff's going to change. And then you're going to see humanity suffer and people are going to start, it's going to go downhill. Courage is the, it's basically the limiting step, right? It's that with which out you can't have anything else because if you don't have that, you ain't gonna have anything because you're not gonna do anything. You won't stand up for what's right. You won't do the integrity thing. You won't, you won't do anything, right? So courage is the first and foremost thing to allow the other ones to go. And right now we need courage. In a world that can foment fear, division, and anxiety, we're called to the courage, integrity, and boldness of saints in every aspect of our lives. This is Living the Call. Peter Rex, welcome to the show. You can, Charlie. Thanks for having me. It's super great to be here. By the way, uh, just a quick note of trivia. This is the first ever remote episode of this show. So we've never actually done it outside of the studio in LA. So we have that rare distinction of uh, having that be with you. And we're remote and we're together in person. So that's Amen. good. Exactly. Exactly. Remote from the studio. And what a location you uh, dialed up for me today, my friend, because this is a spectacular place. We're in Austin right now, the headquarters of, uh, of Rex. But we're also in this incredible location, which I wish I could describe. By the way, I gave you the window seat, right? So that you could, you could be inspired by everything that's behind me. But just to explain to folks listening, we're in this great, uh, great location overlooking, what is this? What is this, like a valley? This is like the, you know, the hill country of Texas. Nice. So right here, you see some canyons. Uh, people don't realize Texas has some beauty to it, you know? Oh my gosh, and how? So anyway, we're, we're seeing that, and I got to give you props for, uh, for hooking that up because it's not every day. I get to, to do this on the road and on the road in such spectacular locations. So thank you for that. Well, yeah, you're welcome. And you know, you're beautiful to look at as well there, Deacon Charlie. Thank you very much. Even with the backlighting. Very good. <laughs> and of course, Austin is the podcast capital of the world now anyway, right? I mean, I think Joe Rogan alone just uh, achieves that achieves that end. Um, we we're just chatting a little bit about you speaking to to the troops and kind of firing them up. And uh, you're, you're a person, we're not going to have any shortage of things to talk about because I've been doing you know, research on you. And there's so many things that are, are so compelling about the vision that you're trying to draw out. But what's that message of inspiration for the troops? Like, what are you telling, you know, your team and of what it is that you're trying to accomplish here? Yeah. So Deacon today, you know, I talked to the troops about what we're up to as a company. I had sent an email out just recently, a couple of days ago, really communicating to all of my connections, all of our contacts that we are finally for the first time open for investment. Well, open it for investment into what? Well, we've been doing technology stuff, a lot of companies and technology we've been, we've been launching. And our goal, our overarching goal is to create new tech leadership because tech leadership currently is a lot of big problems with it, big tech, particularly. I think everyone knows that, so I don't got to get into it. But the solution that people are looking for is not the right one. The, the two areas that you hear solutions from is one is you hear people, you know, they say government's got to get involved, break up big tech. Yeah. But that's not going to work. That's going to prevent entrepreneurs from getting in there that are of good heart and creating new technologies. It's going to actually 
benefit the current technology companies, the big tech will be benefited from regulation, in fact. So it will backfire. And government's usually not the solution anyways, right? Usually you want the government to stay out, you know, stay at bay a bit, right? The second thing you hear about is people like, you know, we got we have to create a new social media platform, like a new Twitter, new Facebook. Well, Parlor. That, yeah, that, tra that train's already left the station, you know? Yeah. And, and besides that, so it's going to be hard to do it. But even if you did do it, that's not going to be the solution that we need. It's kind of a mirage in the desert. What I'm saying we need to do is we need a new tech ecosystem because even if you'd had a new Twitter, a new Facebook, whatever it would be that people can communicate freely on, the reason why it won't work is because down to the metal where the servers are, where your data is being kept, that can be deplatformed. Yeah. We've seen this with Amazon. We've seen it with Azure. They've deplatformed people down at the metal, right? So you need the whole ecosystem. They can also get you off your payment rails where you take, you know, Visa, whatever. Visas kick people off our Stripe, right? You've had these problems happen. This could continue to happen. It will continue to happen unless we have alternative tech leadership. And right now there's a monopoly on tech. All these companies are located in the same place in Silicon mm -hmm. Valley and Seattle. And this is a huge problem because that's the top end of the funnel that controls our public square of where we have discourse. And that is the most important thing. That's why it's in the First Amendment freedom of speech, right? Because in order to figure out what we think, we need to have a discussion. We need to hear ideas. We need to listen to podcasts like this, right? In order to think, you know, how do, how do we, humans don't, no single human has all the answers. We got to have dialogue. We got to exchange ideas. We got to figure out, you know, where do we stand on issues, key issues, important issues. And right now uh, we've got a problem where big tech has control of a lot of these things. So what I'm doing at Rex is a huge idea, which is to disrupt big tech, disrupt, mm -hmm. the, disrupt the disruptors, someone said to me recently. And the way we're doing that is we're building new tech leadership and we're doing it out of Texas. We moved here from the West Coast to do that. So we're right here in the area that's going to be the new tech capital of the world. And by the way, that, that's how I first heard of you. I mean, I've known Christian, who's one of your colleagues on your team for, for a number of years, but I, I think I heard of you outside of that relationship in that move. You were up in Seattle. I think Wall Street Journal picked that up, talked a little bit about, and here's this, at least as it was positioned, this person, you know, kind of maverick raising his hand and going, I don't find around in this environment the kind of place that can sustain the vision that I see for the company that I want to build. So I'm going to, you know, pull up the flag and head to a place where, um, where that's possible. And what most people maybe didn't know or don't know about you is that that decision is made after having the purview of basically covering the globe and understanding where this company could be built. But you chose Austin. That's when I first heard about you. And, it, and then we started, I think, hearing more about companies, oh yeah, pulling up stakes and kind of going to different places coming out to Texas or other places, but it was part of a movement that I recall having seen what you guys started to do. Um, I thought it was super interesting then. Yeah, we're the first company I'm aware of that, did, that publicly gave notice that we're coming over. And you know, a few months later, we started seeing other people do the same thing, Yeah, which is great. I mean, we want an ecosystem of new tech leadership. So we, we're, you know, we've taken the lead on that. We're going to continue to do it, but we need help from people like you, which getting on here and getting our voice out there is going to help. And we need supporters and fans. We need investors. We need elite talent to join. So everyone's going to take a part in this, but we've got to work together because the odds are stacked against us. But, you know, with the fierce fighting will that we have to do it, we can do it. And that's what I was talking to the troops about is getting the word out, spreading the message about what we're doing. Because as I got the message out to people, we've got a lot of responses back right away. And generally, it's everyone's excited about it. And they're also hopeful. And mm -hmm. I think what people need now is they need real hope. Sure. Because you see a lot of the news that people read almost everywhere, it's all, about, it's all negative, both sides, right? It's all negativity. It's like everyone's selling people negative news, right? And they keep buying it. They keep looking at it and making people depressed. But we need real hope, and that's what we're building towards. I mean, it's uh, is building on new tech 
infrastructure that's going to be grounded, new tech leadership grounded in virtue and focused on serving and empowering people. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that's what we're up to out of here. So you talked about kind of getting down to the metal, which I love that expression, but basically understanding that all this is an ecosystem and it's not just about one thing, launch a new website, launch a new platform, but it's about all that, uh, you know, value chain that's all connected. And if one of them gets cut off, it impacts everything. I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, everything going on with the social platforms right now in particular, you know, Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and Snapchat were in front of Congress for the first time two weeks ago talking about some of this stuff. And my, my thinking of this is that on some level, the, the, these platforms have gotten to be almost like electricity in a sense that they're, they're kind of everywhere. People use them almost reflexively. They're part of everyday life. And so, uh, you know, trying to impact them, right, sort of outside in to transform them doesn't seem like it has a lot of, of promise, right? You even think about the fact that Facebook, which probably has one of the worst brand optics right now of any brand in history, nevertheless, hasn't really had any material changes in audience, hasn't really had any material changes in revenue. And to me, that's an argument to the fact that these things are so deeply entrenched that trying to like kind of fix them from the inside is not really the the approach, but rather to your point, kind of create a new sort of ecosystem that that can provide these kind of, you know, a, a different way of approaching it. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, Facebook and these other companies, they have a network effect. So that's something that, you know, people aren't familiar with how strong that can be. But a network effect is a mixture of brand identity in the marketplace and also people that have joined, mm-hmm. that each additional person that joins give value, gives value to the other people on the platform. Facebook has over 2 billion people on the platform. Breaking up a network effect like that is extremely difficult. To give you an, an analogy is the BRIC countries, you know, Brazil, China, Russia, have been trying to break the U.S. dollar stronghold, which is also a network effect. That has not been successful. They've been trying that for, you know, decades. I mean, trying to break up a network effect like Facebook is very difficult to take, you know, a new platform and, and spin it up and it's going to take precedence over it. But I think even if you did do that, that's not going to solve the problem. We need leadership in the technology area that is going to be grounded in virtue and serving people and empowering them and people that have a respect for human dignity. Mm-hmm. And this is where, you know, my faith, you know, comes to play here and speaking here to a deacon and we could just talk about these things, Right. Is that, you know, uh, you know, it depends. You can't really talk on every dimension with everybody, right? But we can talk on that, that, that like next dimension level of, of really God, right? And how that plays into what we're doing. And as a, as a leader, as an entrepreneur, it's the most important thing for me. And this is something that, you know, I, it kind of dawned on me late in the game. It was sort of a, I got into business as a last stop, really. And I had always, you know, I, I'll give you a quick backdrop on myself here is that basically when I was starting out, I never really fit into institutions well. You know, I was kicked out of Montessori school. Later on, I go, you know, go That's to- a the, rare distinction. Uh, yeah, yeah, I feel very proud of it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's like, my parents are like, send him to Montessori school, maybe that'll work. <laughs> then he gets kicked out. Okay, this four-year-old, you know? But um, then throughout, I had, con- you know, consistent problems in school with administration, obedience, whatever. I just couldn't quite, you know, fit in well in yeah. that regard, right? Then I go to the seminary thinking, because, you know, as an Irish Catholic person, I'm thinking, man, I want to serve people, you know? And I had a sincere desire to do so which was actually, actually planted in my heart, I'm sure by my upbringing, but also by a nun there locally used to serve uh, the homebound. Mm. And I used to join with her because I was walking out of a church once and I'm kind of digressing here, but I was walking out of oh, church no. once and I was like 16 and I was a punk, you know, usual 16 year old. And I had like a ball, I used to shave my head bald during sports season because I was like, man, I'm shaving my head bald because I just got to freak out and focus on sports. I ain't got time for girls, you know, I don't want to even think about it, you know, so I just- What was the sport? Uh, I was focused on soccer at the time. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, cool. which is a great sport because yeah. it has no future in it. 
in the U.S. <laughs> and uh, so it's a great sport to be like, you know, obsessed about because then you, you really, once you come to your, you know, once you come to the realization there's no future in this, then you really have to pivot, you know? But so I was real focused on that. And so I, I'm walking out of church and I was reflecting on the reading in my head. It was just like in my head about what you've done to the least of my people that you've done to me, you know? Have you clothed me and I'm naked, you know, visiting the sick, the, you know, the imprisoned, all these things. And I was thinking, you know, I don't do any of this stuff, right? Mm. And, and I'm walking out, you know, in my simplistic 16-year-old selfish brain. And, and I'm like walking out of the church and I just think, man, you know, this thing is bothering me, man. So I turn back around, I go inside and I kneel down to pray mm. as everyone was already out, you know. And I see this nun there praying. And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, that nun's like famous, you know. Her name is Sister Grace Amelda. She's mm -hmm. still kind of known in the area. She's passed away a long time now. But so I go up to her and I'm like, hey, you know, I tap her on the shoulder. She's like in prayer and she's kind of like, who is this kid? You know, she's from the Bronx, so she's pretty tough edged. And I'm from upstate New York, but kind of in the nosebleed section of New York City. It's still in the tri-state area. Anyway, so I go up, not, you know, I tell her, you know, I'm interested in, you know, you do all this work. And I was just thinking, you know, maybe I, you know, maybe I work with you. And she looks at me like, what? You know, she's like, you know, here's my number, call. So anyway, she looked into it. She found out my father was actually a person who used to help out with St. Vincent de Paul and stuff like that. And she, she knew him and she's like, oh yeah, he's a good kid. She, she had me by. So I started working with her, taking some of her cases, people at homebound and visiting them. And she told me one time, she said, you know, what is the key to happiness? And, mm. and then she's like, I gave her a couple of answers. She's like, no, you know, no, that would not be it. But sit here and, you know, think about it. I was with a friend of mine who I brought with me. She's like, what's the key to happiness? You know, think about this. And I'm going to be back with, a, you know, some tea for you guys. So she gets up, goes and gets tea, comes back. You know, we still didn't know. She's like, then she tells us the, the key to happiness. And she has like that glow in her eyes, you know, is serving people. Mm. And I was like, okay. And that just like, boom, lodged in my brain, you know? Mm. So I've always had this thing in my head, serving people, right? So now at, the, at that moment, though, are you even, is it anywhere within the realm of possibility that you might be a discerning a vocation at that moment? Or you're just, you're just kind of had this crazy itch and you decided to ask Ananda how you could get involved. No, I wasn't discerning like a vocation to the priesthood or something like that, right? I was like 16. I, I just was a um, vocation as a Christian, right? We're mm -hmm. all called to serve the poor and help people, right? So I think it, it's just probably the Holy Spirit or God after listening to that, when you listen to that scripture, you know, what have you done to the least of my people, those who really need, really hitting me in the heart and me walking out of there thinking like, man, I'm not doing anything in my conscience. Then I turn back around and come back in. So it was as simple as that that got me involved, you know? And then, you know, as I played it down the road, then later on, I'm 17, 18, I'm thinking, hey, you know, how am I going to serve? I want to serve. I want to serve people. I'm going to do it the biggest way possible. I think, okay, as a Catholic, well, oh, maybe I have to be a priest then. Mm -hmm. So I go to the seminary, but, you know, my, my obedience problems, you know, carried through uh, consistently into there. And the, the people there were like, man, you crazy. Like, do you intentionally just not obey orders here? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I started laughing. I'm like, are you guys kidding me? Like, I've never tried to obey so much in my life. Like, and they were like, really, you're really trying. Are, are, are you by temperament though, kind of a contrarian? Are you somebody who kind of looks, you want to be the minority in a conversation and defend the kind of out there point of view? Like what's your, what's your temperament like? Yeah. So my, my temperament, and this is probably why entrepreneurship is perfect for me actually, because, you know, I'm going to come right back to that. I'll finish this kind of line of thought, right? Is it basically, so I leave the seminary pretty damn quickly, right? And wasn't a fit. I am going to community college. Then from community college, I transferred to Ave Maria, which is a Catholic liberal arts school. From there, I thought maybe I'll go into politics. So then I transferred to Georgetown in DC, but I realized within a few weeks, no way, I can't, I can't deal with this. It's, it's, I don't like politics. So then I was like, all right, what the hell am I going to do? So I get out, I graduate and I spent two weeks in the monastery. I just went to silence. There's a place in Petersham, Massachusetts with Mary Knight monks, Christian monks. 
And I spent two weeks there. They're Maronite monks of perpetual adoration. So they mm. keep adoration going on. So I, I spent a lot of time in prayer there all night in prayer one night as well, you know, and I talked to the monk, they'll be around for spiritual direction if you need it. So I told him I felt this calling to go into business, but I thought maybe it's from the devil. <laughs> I'm mm. serious. Cause you know, as Catholic, especially as Irish people, you know, we're like, we don't think about business as good. We think about it as just kind of like almost dirty in a way. It's sure. like, this is like low end stuff, you know, mm. but we focus on, you got to teach people. Like all my family were teachers. My uncle is a Jesuit, was a Jesuit priest, right? Or, you know, he's passed on now. He's, he's with the Lord, but the, um, those are the ideas I had in my mind, you know, of how to serve. Those are the buckets. So I, was, I didn't, I thought, you know, okay, business, this must be a temptation. But the monk, the, the monk told me, well, why would that be a temptation? Like, hmm. no. Well, he said, listen, go back and he quoted like, a, you know, Old Testament, like um, something from Ezekiel. There's some words, you know, the thunder, it's not in the, the God's voice, not in the thunder. It's not sure. in this, it's not in that. It's in the still quiet voice. So he said, go spend time more in silence. Well, it wasn't silence the whole time. It was two weeks of silence. Mm -hmm. But spend time in front of the Eucharist in silence. So I spent a whole night in the chapel praying, you know. And I continued to do that the whole time, but I felt con con conviction that I was called into business. Now, I didn't have a business background. So that's how I ended up going to business and entrepreneurship, right? So, but then reversing back to my temperament, it was kind of a perfect fit. So it's kind of, you know, follow that voice in your heart, right? I'd say to anybody, including myself, to you as well and the audience, because God knows best and he speaks to you and your intuitions. And like, you know, I felt called to entrepreneurship. Well, the other thing I'd say is we need entrepreneurs, man. So there's people listening that are Christian. We need people getting in there, man, because we need good entrepreneurs that are, that are of good hearts, like Christian people coming in that are going to throw it down and, and help take, take leadership in the world because business people are the leaders right now. So anyways, but that's how I ended up getting into business. I had this uh, experience where I felt called. So it's really a vocation for me, right? And, and then I took that serving people idea into business with me. And in fact, the, the phrase serving people in business is my motto. So it's kind of from that initial encounter with the sister Grace Imelda, the nun. But it's also additionally, I got it from serving with Mother Teresa's sisters because I started mm. a group at Georgetown called Mother Teresa's Hoyas. Mm. And her motto is serving Jesus in the poor. In the poor, yeah. So mine is serving Jesus in business. And then mm. I put backslash people because it's the same thing. So, but then to answer your question though, is you said, well, what about my temperament is I learned somewhat, you know, somewhat recently, only a few years ago, actually, by a woman who helped raise me, I call her my grandma and she's uh, from Killarney, Ireland. And she's been with me the, since I was in diapers, you know, she's so, I'm very close with her and she's, she's great. You know, she's always been hundred percent behind me, but she was at my house and she was laughing. She's like, you know, even at school, you always thought it was always the administration's problem, you know? And mm -hmm. like, even in kindergarten, she's like, you always had to do it your own way, you know? And I was like, really? I did think that. And she's like, no, no, you, yeah, it, you would come back and there would be all these problems. They didn't, they, they wanted to hold you back years in school. They were like, you know, you couldn't seem to, you never listened to the teachers. And they had diagnosed you with, uh, and she couldn't remember what it was. And I started guessing. We had some friends with me and we were guessing, was it ADD? And she's like, no, that wasn't, like, and that wasn't it. And I said, well, what was it? ADHD? And she said, yeah, oh, that's it. ADHD. <laughs> So, but my parents were like, no way, we're not doing labels. So I never knew about it my whole life. Mm. Yeah. So when'd you find out about it? Well, she mentioned this to me that, but that was a diagnosis that somebody had given at some allegedly, point. Allegedly. Yeah. You know, this is elementary school, right? But likely my temperament is just one of these types of people that is, you know, has those characteristics that I can hyper-focus. I'm also easily distractible, mm -hmm. but I see things very differently. And you know what? That's a gift though. Like it is. these aren't people with disabilities. And it was actually very prudent and wise of my parents not to tell me that because I never knew that. I just had to deal with who I am, right? So I never fit in well in a classroom environment. So I went to Georgetown, I went to Harvard Law School and I got a JD there, right? Now, if you, now when I remember I, 
One time I was talking and to a doctor. By the way, that doesn't stand for job description. That's a juris doctor, right? Yeah, so, yeah, law degree. Right. So I got a law degree from Harvard Law. And when I was there, though, I remember talking to, you have to do these you know, regular checkups like everybody, right? Talking to the doctor and I mentioned, hey, because a lot of my friends would say, hey, man, you must have ADD, man, or whatever. And I'd be like, you know, I don't know, man, probably. But, and I'd tell, them, I'd tell this doctor, I'm like, hey, man, you know, uh, you know, do I have ADD, whatever. I was asking him. And he was like, nah, it's impossible. You would never have been able to get in here. And I was like, did you have, he's like, did you have any special allowances for the test? I was like, no. He's like, so you, you couldn't, it's impossible. So the point is, you know, you know, what, whatever, man, about the, I just would skip classes all the time and I'd mm -hmm. read books. So if I'm in it with a book and I'm alone and I isolate myself from people, I'll slam through material like crazy. Right. So, the, and, and for entrepreneurship, it works out perfect because there's always these unknowns and that you're trying to figure out. Right. So that works so well for my mind because my mind is so curious to try to figure it out. Now, if it's already figured out and I just got to rote learn it, and that sounds so interesting. For me. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But if I don't know what it is and every day, like you're building, you're working this podcast, you're out there every day, you have to create, you know, new content. What are you going to do? You got to make sure the audience is being fed well, right? You got to serve the audience. Well, that's entrepreneurship. Well, that's fascinating. So it's Absolutely. easy for my mind to focus on those things. But if it's other things like, you know, rote stuff, I get, you know, more difficult, you know, like law school. We're just, we're <laughs> so. just meeting for the first time, obviously. So I'm getting a chance to kind of experience just what I've read about you, but it strikes me that, you know, you're a person who can dive headlong into something and take all, you know, try to basically get all of the input from a given subject matter to try to close the gap on a, you know, some learning that you need or want or desire. Right. One of my sons, um, when he was initial, when he was very young, two or three years old, uh, we noticed that, you know, had had some interesting things. Right, he was very fixated on 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 particular subjects. He could spend hours just like tinkering with something, and we had to kind of draw his attention from that. And there were some things that he wasn't interested in doing that other kids were doing all the time. But he had, you know, eventually we we he had a diagnosis of Asperger's, and you know he's been very mainstreamed since then. He's 18 years old. He's a pilot. Taught himself to fly after watching YouTube videos. But his characteristic that I kind of recognize a little bit in what you've described is this ability of seeing something that he wants to understand at a better level and then just diving into that thing, like sucking all the juice out of it to the degree that he can to better understand it and then going, okay, now I can put the next building block in place because I've got this one. Is that kind of a fair way of how, you're, how you view things? Is yeah, that similar? It, it's similar. I mean, I probably don't have any anything on say the spectrum of that level though, I'm just guessing I'm probably just like an 88, you know, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm not suggesting be, you're on the spectrum. I'm just saying no, that no, like, no, you it, know, it's a similar characteristic no, is all I'm saying. Yeah. And, and by the way, people who are on the spectrum are just gifted in different yeah, ways. Well, that's like, what I found. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is like to compare, I think you said your son is a pilot. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Like I don't know. So <laughs> it's funny because I've talked to fighter pilots and they were like, man, you would not be, you know, you might be a good fighter pilot, but you wouldn't be a good regular pilot because I'm not good at like, if, you know, it wouldn't be my, now, obviously I've done this because I have a CPA as well and I have a JD. So I've been able to force myself to do stuff that I'm not good at, but I'm good at naturally good at entrepreneurship. Now I'm not good at a lot of things. Mm. Being a pilot, you've got to be very programmatic and careful. Like I wouldn't want to fly in a flight. I wouldn't want to fly in a plane with me as a captain. Mm, you know what I'm saying? Why? Because like, I, you know, I probably wouldn't even review the checklist or, you know, you got to go through like, you got to be real rigorous. Sure. Now I've got a brother-in-law who's a fighter pilot. I definitely want to fly with him. He's so damn careful and like particular, but I'm built differently. Right. So everyone's, you know, got different talents. <clears throat> they have all different talents, Deacon. And that's the thing with, with labeling people in a negative way or whatever, it's BS, man. It's yeah. like, everyone's got these gifts and like, you know, they're just special in different ways. And it's, it's kind of a blessing. I never even knew 
possibly that I had maybe something that they would have labeled me on. I had no idea. Now, later on, I had professors tell me like, man, you know, are you paying attention to class at all? If I ever went and they'd be like, I'd be like, I don't know, man. I walk out of any class I'm in almost all the time. I go to a class, I walk out, I got nothing. They didn't really yeah. remember anything. I'd be yep. like, what the hell? But if you give me the books, I'll just like slam through it. Mm -hmm. or, or if you give me a podcast, I'll listen to it at 3X speed. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I'll be like able to focus. But everybody's different. My wife would like drive, drives her nuts. If I'm like, put it on like the car, like podcast, she'd be like, how the hell are you able to listen to this? And I'll be like, how to get, you know, how can you listen to a one X? Exactly. Cause you got to get it in there. Yeah. I, by the way, I do. I, I think I can already say that we're not, it's going to be a challenge to listen to this one at three X. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. But it's true. I'm already moving at three X. Yeah. Right? So, uh, which I, yeah. So, but yeah, so, you know, uh, one random thought I had was there was a movie called peanut butter Falcon. Hmm. Oh yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. 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 yeah Recently, not too long ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it was by chance. I walked into the theater and saw that with my wife. Cause we go in to see a movie and I was like, nothing was new. This is back before the pandemic hit. And I'm like, you know, I'm in Seattle at the time and we're kind of going to date night, you know? So sure. kind of can't think of anything more creative than a movie. So that's what we did. Right. So we go there and I'm like, you know, looking at these different options, none of them are that good. I see this peanut butter Falcon. I'm like, that sounds kind of goofy. Look at him. Like, eh, it could be good. We, we watch it. Anyways, it's about a kid with, the, the lead actor is with Down syndrome, mm -hmm. actually does have Down syndrome. I mean, dude, it's so moving for me because look at these guys are like, you know, Down syndrome babies are being, Down syndrome babies are being killed in the womb in Ireland and other places, like, not in Ireland so much, but everywhere else, right? And, and it's very um, troubling for me because you think, you know, what are we killing here? Like, these are our brothers and look how much they have to give us because like they have a, they just say it like they see it. And you know how much we need to hear it like they see it? Because we're full of BS in our head. And anyways, these people are gifts. Absolutely, 100%. So, and it goes to your orientation too, because if you approach things from a Christian perspective, you know that every person is an original thought of God. I think it was Pope Benedict who actually said that. And when I read that quote, um, it, it just blew me away that like, you know, God thought of you and thought of you in a very unique, specific way. And that's why you're here. And whether it's Down syndrome or ADHD or Asperger's or whatever it is, that is the unique thought of God for whatever reason. And there's a role that that person plays in this kind of tapestry of salvation. When you snuff that out, you're changing that story, right? And so it, 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 to me, it's kind of how you, what perspective are you approaching this from? Because the kind of more popular or secular perspective might say, yeah, but look at all the disadvantages that this person's going to have. And boy, aren't we saving them some, some trouble and some pain. And so for, from my vantage point, I agree with you. It's a hundred percent a gift. And in some cases, a great gift that can be for that person and for others around them. But it's difficult to make that case to a lot of people who don't share that starting point of the framework of why people matter to begin with. Yeah. Deacon, that's, I love that thought. I've never heard that one. The, I love Pope Benedict, by the way. I read Pope Benedict every morning. Mm. So I listen to a thing that records it, um, and, and then I reflect it with my family. We'll go over a little bit, which is a little bit dense for kids at six years old. And yeah, I have four kids, sure. a seven-year-old, four, two, and nine-month-old. But my wife and I discuss it, and, and yeah, I love Pope Benedict. But probably the best, one of the best intellectuals of the last you know, 2,000 years, honestly. He'd be up there top 10 in my book. Yeah. You know? So anyways, and I've read a ton of them, right? But different intellectuals. But He's so accurate in his thinking, but that's a beautiful thought. And I would just say that it is our own short-sightedness. Short it's our own selfishness that thinks that they are actually not going to bring value in the world because we're too focused on things that we think is valuable. And we don't really know what's totally valuable long-term. And we need these gifts of God to help, help us to see what is valuable. No question. I want to go back, Pete, to something you said a while ago 
um, about this orientation and this passion for service that was born in you and that you've carried through throughout all of these years in a variety of different manifestations. You talked about the importance of finding that service inside the realm of business. Anybody who's heard me talk um, has heard me say some variation of this, which is why when I heard you say it, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. And that is that we're all in a particular time and place for a reason, right? We could have been, you know, 11th century Africans, right? Or whatever, Stone Age people. But we're born, we're, we're 21st century Americans for a reason in God's plan. And when you look out at the levers of cultural influence, the levers of, you know, whatever, power and all those different things, you see the business community in that context having a kind of influence that maybe has never existed ever in humanity, right? And so I view business as a huge mission field in maybe a different way uniquely in 2021 than would have been the case for business in any other age or any other time. And yet I find that our input as Christians and even the churches into that realm of business is very muted, right? So where I see a tremendous opportunity to kind of go in and be the leaven, right? Kind of like inspire people from within the business community to, to live this authentic life, to, to find this new leadership that you're talking about, because to me, that's a huge mission field. Yeah, no, that's, a, I mean, I, you know, we could riff on this for sure. I mean, this is right at the heart of what I think my vocation is, is, and I think, you know, I just didn't see it, but I think God saw it and he wanted someone in there, you, me, to get in there and start making a voice about this, that Christ wants in, God wants in, he wants to bring goodness, heaven wants to come into the area of commerce. And the reality is the bully pulpit of today, the place that has the platform is entrepreneurship. It is business. You know, a couple hundred years ago, I'm reading a biography on one of my heroes, George Washington. I love George Washington. Mm -hmm. Good Christian guy, by the way. Don't let anybody tell you anything otherwise because it's not true. He's a solid Christian. But anyways, George Washington, you know, at his time, the way to rise up and what had power was, you know, military people, Right. So if you were ambitious and you felt called, that was where you can have the most influence. Now, nowadays, that is, that's still true partly, but now it's, even, it's more true in a different area, and that is in the business side. Because capitalism has been universally adopted. Even China's cap capitalistic. They're just totalitarian. So they say they're communists, but they're actually just, well, actually, totalitarianism and communism mean the same thing, but, you know, whatever. The, uh, but, <laughs> the, uh, but, you know, but you look at, um, you know, now, wh where is the power, the, the, the most leadership right now, or influence, talk about influence, right? Where's the influence? It's coming from the entrepreneurs. Well, why? Because they are admired. So that's a big thing. They're admired by other people. So you admire, who you admire is who you become. Mm. It's a good saying, right? And that's true, right? That's why it's important to admire the perfect man, Jesus, because everyone else is so imperfect, right? Now, we have other role models as well that are just reflections of him in different ways, right? But he is the ultimate role model because all of us are so fallen, right? And so fallible and human and, and weak in different areas. But anyways, but, you know, but Christ wants to come into business. He wants to be a light there. And, and we need to be a voice for, for God there to say, in business, we can serve people and we should serve people. And in fact, we'll make more money by doing so in the long run. And when you don't serve people in business, when you're exploitative of others, then you could Lose the, you will lose the trust of others and you will become somebody, something of a God. You start to think of yourself as a God. You start to put yourself above other people and then you can start censoring them and dehumanizing them. And we see that with big tech today, you know, to pick, just to kind of continue the fight I've already picked anyways with these guys, is you see it with big tech, right? Mark Zuckerberg kind of being the face of it. 
but the other big tech leaders as well, you know, what are they doing? They're bullying people. They are censoring others. They are extremely self-righteous, which is ironic because they don't have any values. They have no principles. So what's going on here? Well, why would they be so self-righteous when they have no principles? Well, the reason I think why is because they think themselves to be a God over others. Mm -hmm. So if you are God, you make the rules. And these other little peon humans, well, we can just exploit them. We can censor them. We can dehumanize them because they don't have the dignity of man anymore. They don't, you don't respect that human dignity that we know as, as Christians that we have to do, right? It's a, it's a high bar for us. And as a business leader, as a tech leader, I've got to do that, right? I've got to think about the people I'm serving. And the better I can serve them, the better I'll do long term. And when you're exploitative of others, you lose the trust anyways of your customers. And, and really, you end up being in a den of thieves anyways, right? I mean, who are these people, right? They're, like I was, I was joking around to some other guys in my company recently, executives, and I was saying, what the hell is going on at Facebook? They have a, what do they have like an executive meeting and they talk about how, hey, we already have a monopoly. We're making insane amounts of cash, right? Uh, but, you know, we found out and we're, and now we're sure that uh, what we're doing is causing suicide rates to go up for teenage girls. Well, you know what? Just kind of hide that data and go ahead and keep exploiting these girls. What the hell? Like, mm -hmm. that's crazy. Like, mm -hmm. what kind of conversation is that? I'd be like, if someone came to me and said, I'm not sure what to do here. Do we continue this or not? I would be like, well, you know, I know what to do. You are not working here anymore. You're let go immediately. You're fired. And uh, we don't want someone like that in our company that even wonders what to do in that situation. You obviously do not exploit people for money. Let's talk about that for a second. So I came across a stat not too long ago that, um, you know, there's six companies in the world that are trillion dollar market capitalizations. Five of those are American. One of them is the Chinese power company. Of those five, you've got Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, um, forget Tesla. Maybe, yeah, Tesla. Recently. But you've got, um, you've got these companies and they're all, you know, situated. Apple probably. Sorry, Apple. You're right. That's the one I always forget. So Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, et cetera. So you've got these companies all concentrated in a similar geographic area run by people that have very similar backgrounds, similar schooling, similar political ideologies, and all this power concentrated in, in just a few people. I got to imagine, and this maybe gets to the heart of what you're saying, is the reason why people don't act in that way is because that temptation, you're talking about more power in, in worldly sense, economic and otherwise, that's ever existed in human history, you know, condensed in these just like few people. That's got to be a tremendous temptation because I think about people like Mark Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai and all of these guys. And as much as I agree with what you said, I also think of them as like, those are God's kids too, right? And so they need to hear and to be oriented in this way as well, right? And so like, how do you control? And maybe I have this question for you independently, but how would, how would they guard against the kind of corrosive temptation that comes by virtue of that kind of power. Do you see what I'm saying? Because we've never seen anything like that before. Well, I, you know, we have seen it before, I'd say, Deacon. But first of all, awesome point, though, that just pointing out that they are God's kids. And that's something that could be lost even for me, right? Because I get, I get fired up about this. Sure. I was talking to my brother the other day. He's got, you know, I've got like, I've got so many nieces, man. All my, all my family members have so many kids. You know, you got five kids, I got four, right? My, my brother's got six, seven kids now. Six of them are girls. So I got six nieces. And then my sister's got six kids, five are girls. So, you know, he, I was talking to him and I said, hey, you know, I was thinking, am I a little too harsh sometimes on big tech? And he's like, what? I can't stand those guys. I mean, I'm worried about my kids, this and that. He's like, no way, you got to be harsh. So I'd say, 
But I would say, you know, as we are doing that, to remember that they are God's kids is a good check on me, honestly. And I thank you for that, Deacon, because I got to remember that, right? And like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is a child of God, right? First and foremost, and that makes him my brother. So, you know, I think, but that now when we say that, does that mean we allow him to go and do what he does and allow other people to do what they're doing? No, but because it, we have to defend everyone and we have to speak up the truth. That's a, the role of the prophet, right? We're all priests, prophets, and kings, right? Correct. We have to be a prophet and we're actually missing a lot of prophetic leadership right now. Mm. Up and down, even the leadership of the church, they don't have the cojones to step up and say what is true anymore. And which is also ironic as an as a entrepreneur leader, I, have to, I get out there and I say stuff about pro-life issues and I say it only because no one else is saying anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, I, I, so that's God's almost just like, I was telling someone the other day, one of my partners, Christian, who leads our media side, I was like, it's almost like God was like, he went to the banquet, like in the parable and he was like, hey, you know, all the people invited didn't come, you know? So he went to the street and he was like, hey, you like entrepreneur business guy, you say something now because these other it's guys aren't point. saying anything. It's a great point. And I was like, what the heck, man? So I went and basically we created a video with our team about the heartbeat bill in Texas and saying, hey, this is great. We ha- what, if you want a government to do anything, what do you want them to do? Defend the most vulnerable. What, who are the most vulnerable? Everybody knows that that is a human life there. Everyone. Not one person knows that, that. Everyone knows that. The pro-choice people know it as well. And we got to defend that life, you know, and no one's saying anything. And that's something that's happened, I think, relatively recently in the idea that you can no longer really defend uh, objectively, the fact that we're talking about anything other than a, than, than a human life. I mean, even people who are on the pro-choice side have kind of made that concession and nevertheless still hold that position. But it's a super interesting point because you're right. It's like this idea of not calling the perfect, but perfecting the called, right? And it's like, if it happens to be the business guy, the entrepreneur, then that's that profit for that time and place. And by the way, in a long line of profits throughout scriptural history that have not necessarily been born for that task, right? Just kind of called out of the out of the masses to serve at that particular moment. I do think that that is a role that, well, certainly you're taking, but that the business community at large can have because precisely of its level of influence. Yeah, and, and Deegan, yeah. A, and, and, and to, to riff on what you're saying there is, you look at when that heartbeat bill came out, what, what happened? Big tech leaders everywhere, tech leaders everywhere. They lined up, oh, you know, this heartbeat bill, this thing about, you know, pro-abortion, blah, 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 saying stuff in the news, right? There wasn't one person that was com- there wasn't anybody coming out saying anything for the pro-life cause for on behalf of the company or on their own, right? I was like, well, what does that say? What think about these young people, right? Like, or just people in general that are looking for leadership and saying, what's going on? You know, like, what do I think? What should I think? They're led by others, right? Too, and no one's coming out and saying anything. So that that led me to come out as well and take a stance. And like, even if we got one person out there with one voice, you know, look at George Washington, the American Revolution, right? It he would, you know, if if he died, it would have been over. Mm-hmm. But that one guy was like resolute. Like we're going to win. And he kept coming. Right. He felt, he felt called by God and, he, and we got to work hard. And that's another thing. I'm just going on a segue here to the audience, to you. We got to get out there and do stuff, man. We could talk crap, but that doesn't do anything. We got to get after it. We, this is important. We're trying to educate people and get things out there and we're conveying ideas. Right. But we need to turn that into action. We got to incarnate the word, right? The word's got to become flesh, you know, because if it doesn't, none of the stuff's going to change. And then you're going to see humanity suffer. And people are going to start, it's going to go downhill. And that, that can't happen. Like, we got to fight that. And you look at, like, mentioning George Washington there, he would work 48 hours straight, they said, sometimes. He would just be working, you know, and anybody who joined into his inner circle, they said they would just, they traded their comforts in life for duty for 24-7. And we've got to trade our comforts for duty right now. And, and 
and not let down our, our guard and keep coming. So anyways, that was a quick segue. But continuing on the big tech thing, because I left that thread, but picking it back up for you is I think seeing him as a child of God, absolutely. But I think we got to call him out. And you look at, you know, Jesus, he wasn't some pushover man. That is like, that is like the, what they make Jesus look like. It's, it's BS though. They never read the gospel. The gospel is really short. It's a profound book. They should read it. It would take them like, you know, a couple hours. It's mm-hmm. very short, right? But Jesus was, uh, I mean, there's, they didn't crucify him because he was like, you know, getting along with everybody. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Crucifixion was like the worst, it was the worst form of punishment in the Roman Empire. And it was a very common one in the sense of like, it wasn't like they reserved it for royalty. It was like the commonest of people were crucified and lined up in rows. So it was a degrading, uh, uh, you know, punishment as well, as, as well as being brutal. It was like the worst of all worlds, right? Super bad and painful and also just like super common and degrading. Yeah. And, it, and, it's, and it's for your worst of criminals, right? So he wasn't getting along with people. He was calling them out. Yeah. And I think we've got to call them out. And if they want to crucify us, like, you know, that whatever, man, like, well, the, the, let's go. Like, I the, mean, it's going to be hard to crucify me because I'm going to come out <laughs> swinging, but I'm not as Christ-like as I should be. Maybe, well, well the, li- the line that comes, <laughs> the, the line that comes uh, uh, up for me when I'm hearing you talk, Pete, is uh, zeal for your house will consume me. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I preached uh, on zeal not too long ago as the combination of emotion and passion and all of these different things plus action. It's very difficult to be zealous without doing And my question for you, based on what you said about, we got to do stuff, we got to move, we got to make these things happen, is what's keeping people from doing that? There's a lot of people of goodwill. I run into them all the time. And people who, in retrospect, can go, you know what? I kind of thought that thing wasn't right to do. We should have done it differently. I should have said this. I should have said that. What are the obstacles that people have to taking that sense of goodwill or passion for something that's good in the world and actually doing something about it, which an entrepreneur naturally understands. See a market gap, attack the gap, build the thing. Like that's easy for an entrepreneur to get. Like what are the obstacles that keep other folks from, from realizing a vision like that in their own lives? Well, I think, I think right now we, you know, Deacon, we're faced with a culture. They call it the cancel culture or whatever, you know? And the answer to the cancel culture I've been saying recently is the courage culture. Like we need courage. Love that. Yeah. And they, you know, in the ancient world, courage is the, the, it's basically the limiting step, right? It's that with which out you can't have anything else because if you don't have that, you ain't going to have anything because you're not going to do anything. You won't stand up for what's right. You won't do the integrity thing. You won't, you won't do anything, right? So courage is the first and foremost thing to allow the other ones to go. And right now we need courage because the cancel culture and the media at large and kind of, I call it big government, big big media, big tech, the unholy trinity, the unholy trinity of big government, big tech, big media, they make it seem like, you know, they're going to crush you, you know, and you say something, you're out, buddy. They're going to cancel you. They're going to kick you off. They're going to do this and that, whatever, you know, and they're also going to, you know, soft discriminate against you. You want to rise up in your company? Well, you say something, you're probably not going to rise up, right? They might even start to work you out in their own little quiet way, right? So, and, th- and that's definitely the case. And look, I mean, these guys are doing it openly now, right? I mean, they basically, they'll do it to anybody. So they're, they're emboldened by their power, right? But the thing is, the people have power, man, like crazy power, like power to the people, man. And <laughs> the thing is, I'm all about that, you know? So power to the people, man. The people have a lot of power. Mm. They also know what is right. And if they just grab onto that knowledge of what is right and they start stepping out, that's why I'm saying stuff too. I'm saying stuff also to create space and to give leadership and say, Hey, I'm saying stuff, you know, come up, step up, say something too. Let's go. You know, let's start backing each other up, man. 
Because if we don't, you know, I, was, I quoted to the team today, I said, hey man, you know, if we don't, it was from Benjamin Franklin quote, he said, he said at the time, because he knew when he went against the British Empire, and when he went around, he went against the British Empire, and the thing that triggered him, it pushed him over because he was a loyalist, was he saw the way that the Irish Catholics were treated in Ireland when he was visiting, because he was like an ambassador in, in England. And when he would visit Ireland, he realized, man, that's how it's going to be for, the colonial, for us colonial people. Mm. They're going to be like the Irish Catholics, like secondary, dehumanized, you know, no rights, can't own property and everything else. Because that triggered him. He saw the Irish couldn't even afford shirts. Like they were just like, you know, cold and stuff. It was just poverty was everywhere. And that, that pushed him over the edge. But Franklin said when he, you know, because he knew the power of the British army and the military, he said, uh, you know, either at this point, we're all going to hang together, going to be hung together, or for certain though, we will be hung separately. Mm. So I think, you know, people got to bind together. And when we do, it will shock the world. When the good people out there, and there's so many good people out there you talk about, there's great people in Silicon Valley and Seattle too. I come across them. I would say they're the majority, man. For sure. It's the minority that's obnoxious. California too has been taken over by like, you know, tyrants basically. <laughs> and, but the, a lot of these, you know, people that are up to evil, like they're driven by these short-term motivations that get power and then, and then push their political ideology onto people and shove it and bang it over their heads. And I know you're Latino, man. My kids are Latino, man. My wife is from Puerto Rico. Latinos, we don't, you know, you know, they don't, and I say we now, because I guess it's my family. You have right? to. Yeah, we, because part of my family is, we don't like that crap, man, because we're into family, you know? Right. And like a lot of this nonsense, they're trying to go cut in front of us with our kids. What? Yeah. Come on, man. Like they're going after your kids. Are you not going to fight for your kids? Mm. You're going to stand by? No, man, we're going to fight for our kids. Like, let's just start coming up. If courage is important, how do you cultivate courage? Well, you know, I have a picture of St. Uh, St. Every morning I wake up, I do uh, 30 minutes of silent prayer, but then I go do my rosary and stuff like that right after that. But when I brush my teeth, I keep a picture of St. Patrick. And the reason why I do that is because St. Patrick came to Ireland and I'm still, I still have the faith from that, right? That was in the 400s. You know, the Irish were so damn barbaric. I mean, the fighting Irish, right? I mean, we're still barbaric. But, uh, you know, but they were so damn barbaric that like he was scared out of his wits and he still came. And like, that's why his prayers are so like, he's scared, you know, mm. like he's writing these prayers, like Jesus before him, Christ before me, Christ be in the eyes of those who see me, Christ behind me. He was freaking out because I mean, these people were like savage, you know, they were not Christianized at all. Like not pre-Christian cultures were nuts. I mean, they were sacrificing human beings in like France and Gaul, you know, under Julius Caesar. And he was like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> so this is just 60 years before Christ. So these places were like, you know, they talk about the Aztecs were sacrificing humans. I'm like, yeah, well, so were you at the, the French. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was where Gaul was. But these pre, you know, so he was in there, but he had that courage. And I think, you know, be not afraid and just basically, look, you know, what do you have to lose anyways? You know, you're going to die anyways, right? We're all going to die. So, but at the end of the day, like, we're all going to live forever. So like, this is a quick moment that passes. I don't want to, I, I would encourage people to be prudent. You got to be smart, right? So you can't be stupid. You got to be shrewd as a serpent instead as a dove. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, you got to come out and say something because if it, the other thing is, what, what is it worth to live a life where you were a coward anyways? So what, you're going to be like on your deathbed as a coward? And then, you know, your grandkids would be like, oh yeah, grandpa the coward. Sure. Well, that's, <laughs> so, that's, that's scripture too about winning the world and losing your soul, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely in there. But I think you touched on the importance of the interior life, which is what you described, brushing your teeth and doing your stuff. And that, you know, that powers, and it's very easy, especially I can attest to this as an entrepreneur and business person for many years, losing sight of that. It's very easy to do. 
calendar's going, you got this thing. Oh, it's just this one very important deal. And once I get that done, then I'll focus on God. And we forget that God's the Lord of time and the Lord of the meeting and the Lord of your calendar and the Lord of the Slack and the Lord of the email. Like you forget that, right? So it's a very common temptation, but that focus on that interior life, I think is super critical in being that, that fount, if you will, or font of courage. It flows from something, namely someone, and that's God, right? And, and tapping into that, obviously, in varied ways, but is like crucial to actually being able to carry out that courage in the world in any sphere of influence. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And I think it's that, um, you know, be still and know that I am God. That's, yeah. you know, just that contemplation. That's what I do for 30 minutes in the morning. And sometimes I'm thinking like, I suck at praying because I can't focus. But the, you know, but the thing is though, the reality is, you know, that, you know, God, he could communicate. He doesn't need to use words, man. We use words because we're imperfect, right? He is the word. So he can impress in your soul in that time. And then even throughout the day, right? To pray always, right? Pray constantly. It's just to have a, a mindset of that, no matter where you are, you know, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm going to do it through there. And I'm encouraging other people, by the way, I'll do it again, no sales pitch, to get into entrepreneurship, join a startup, do stuff like that. But there's a lot of other audience too that do other things. You could be a nurse, be, not, be a missionary there, you know, like be a missionary wherever you are and serve people and be bold in that area, right? I want to touch on another point about St. Patrick really quick and see if this is something that resonates for you as well. The other thing I think that's meaningful about St. Patrick in working with the pre-Christian, the Druids and all this other stuff where you're right, he's turning a corner trying to go evangelize somebody and somebody drops a brick on his head or something. That was, a, that was definitely around every corner. Those kind of dangers existed. But what St. Patrick was also known for was the idea of baptizing or Christianizing things. So not, de not destroying the, the, the cultures that existed there, but sort of incorporating them into the Christian experience. One of the things that I think is there to be had in the business and entrepreneurial and all of these systems and processes that we've built is a way to Christianize and baptize them for the benefit of the church. There's so many times when I talk to people who are church people, you know, diocesan, they're part of the ecclesial kind of system. And you talk to them about a marketing funnel, or you talk to them about a product market fit, or you talk to them about these things and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And in a way, it feels a little dirty, like to your earlier point, talking to them about these things. But if they can be Christianized, if they can be baptized, we can get serious utility out of some of those things in the church world. So I see entrepreneurship and business being able, that door to swing both ways, right? Is like, hey, yes, we're out in the world and we're influential and we're helping to bring this message in, in varied ways, but we can also give back to the church itself institutionally some of these great tools and things that we picked up for the benefit of their efforts. Do you see something like that similar? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, you know, to kind of segue riff on a, a similar point is that, you know, what is the church, right? Yeah. No, we are the church. Yeah. Like, you are the church. Like, I am the church. You know, what was it in the book of Acts or something or somewhere in the Bible in the New Testament, the private book of Acts. But, they, you know, Christ says, yeah, the book of Acts. He, he, he says to St. Saint, Saint Paul when he knocks him off his horse, kind of, you know, mm -hmm. Jesus blinding light, you know, why are you persecuting me? Me. You know, that is because he is one with his church and mm -hmm. we are members of the church. So I think us thinking about the clergy as like this church and everything else, and then make, that also can lead us to complain about the church. Oh, the church, you are the church. Like I am the church. So what are we complain about, right? What I'd say is the clergy uh, compared to the lay people, I'd say as lay people, and you're kind of in between, right? You're both actually, as a deacon, you're so it's all on you to bridge these things right now. The both, deacon. both worlds. Yeah, you got to connect these worlds, man. The clergy with the lady, right? But I, you know, I would say, man, this is going to be controversial, but I'm going to say it anyways, is that we, because, hey, man, you invited Peter Rex, I got to speak my mind. Mm -hmm. But anyways, what I'm going to say is that 
the clergy are not going to be the key here. The reason why is because, you know, we've got a leadership problem there. And, and you got to remember, you know, in the book of Galatians, you know, chapter 12 or somewhere around there, it's got Paul confronts Peter. Oh, yeah. Cephas, right? About his scandal he brought. Scandal. What is scandal? It's when you give a bad, it's when you, through your example and leadership, give permission for things that confuse the faithful. Well, Pope Francis is, is doing that. Now, I want to be humble when I say things because I am, you know, respect the office of the papacy because I'm a, you know, Catholic. But I'd say that he needs to be aware of that and there needs to be a cor- course correction there. Mm. But in the meantime, like that, we as lady, as people that are out in the world, we got to do something. We got to stand up. We got to say stuff because we cannot count on it to come from there, to come from the clergy. The clergy, you know, have their own sets of issue. And even throughout history, the clergy and the lady have kind of helped each other back and forth, right? You're almost talking about someone's like iron sharpens iron on the two of them, right? They need us just as what well. They're members of our family. We've got to figure out how to help them too, right? For sure. You looked at under Char- in, in Charlemagne in the 800s in, in Europe, right? Charlemagne helped to reform the church then because the church was very corrupt and he helped to reform it. Now he wasn't a clergy member, right? And then you look at later on, Isabel of Spain, who's now a servant of God. My daughter's named after her. She re- helped reform the church as well. In Spain, she reformed it, you know, very well, massively corrupt, right? And, and the Protestant revolution took off because of that, because of the corruption in the church. But you look in Spain and never made one inch in there, not one inroad. Why is that? Because they already reformed. They had reformed all their monasteries, reformed all the clergy, and she did it by force, basically. <laughs> you know, but it came from the outside. True reformation often, and really almost always, comes from the outside. And I think at this point, the lady need to reform the clergy. Because the yeah. clergy are just rife with problems. And that's not the first time it's happened, too. I was just talking to somebody yesterday about St. Catherine of Siena. You know, laywoman went and kind of wagged her finger in the Pope's face at that time and said, hey, you know what? You're over here in France kind of sitting around. You need to get back to Rome and help your church out. And I'm sure that that took a tremendous amount of courage to do, but the church benefited as a result. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like that door can swings both ways, right? And can give back just as much as we're doing our own thing in the business world. We can be we can be helpful to them in, in that end. Just out of curiosity, because you mentioned it, have you ever thought about the diaconate? Um, I, you know, I didn't. Um, I mean, I've obviously considered everything, but you know, it wouldn't be for me. I'm, I'm not cut out for these structured operations. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you know, so I haven't, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm not called to that, but I have a lot of respect for it. Mm. And you as well, Deacon. And it's also because you're a legit guy, by the way. In every way, I looked, you know, I've looked you up thoroughly before I came here. So I'm happy to be riffing with you on this. I have a lot of respect for you, both professionally, what you've achieved is, is extraordinary. And also that you are a deacon. And you also got five. I like how you also told me I got five kids, one in heaven. I was like, I'm gonna like this guy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you're just, you're, 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 you're all around awesome guy. I've never thought about that. I don't think the diaconate would be good for me. And mm. look, the reality is no bishop wants to have me under their authority anyways. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, mm. I'm not gonna be the best one, right? But the thing is, I'm like, hold out a slight hope that uh, you know through some prayer maybe something will change. There. Yeah, yeah. I think you'd make a hell of a deacon, to be honest. Yeah, maybe, but you know, I don't think that you know. I'm not sure if it would be good for the uh, church structure. I might overthrow the entire structure. My buddy, I'm just kidding. My bu- my <laughs> my buddy's uh, always saying when we get into conversations like this, he's like, "Look, it's just a matter of time. Vatican III, rise of the deacons." You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's uh, it's coming, it's coming because the deacons have played throughout history, and this is something I know your history buff that you'll, you know, you'll appreciate. I mean, the diaconate was something very different, you know, centuries ago and was really the right arm of the, of the bishop in administering and managing the actual diocese. And I see a need as the priesthood continues to diminish, especially in this country, that that diaconate needs to take a much more, um, 
you know, important role administratively, strategically, and spiritually. So I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there because it's something that just hit me when I was talking to you. So I thought I'd mention it. You're inspiring all this courage already. Yeah, no, but you know, what just hit me back was it wouldn't work. So, (laughs) well, there you go. (laughs) But I appreciate the thought. But, you know, I, you know, it's, I, I think it's, you know, basically God, whatever, for whatever reason, wants me to be a voice in my own station here as an entrepreneur. And that, that works out well. And I'm in a unique position where I can, I could say stuff like this, where I can challenge the clergy. I can make a challenge even to the Pope himself right now to say, hey, you know, your leadership is an example to others. And if you have a meeting with Joe, uh, President Joe Biden, and in that meeting, you don't say anything to speak up for unborn life. All you do is you, you act as a champion for causes that have innumerable champions. There's already champions for climate change and everything else. And you don't say something, and that's a hot button issue right now. In a way, you've said, you've said through your leadership that it's maybe not that important. Mm. And then he gets out and says he's a good Catholic, when actually by canon law, and we know that someone like him as a public official, because it gives scandal, cannot receive communion he doesn't say anything about it, doesn't correct it, then we've got a problem on leadership there. And with all due respect to him, because he still is the Pope, and I think he's a good man. He has a big devotion to Mary and everything else, just like me. And dude, far, look, he's got so much weight on his shoulders, right? And he's trying to carry the church forward, right? So, but at the same time, we, you know, I'm just speaking truth here. And someone's got to say it, and I don't think a bishop can say it because they're directly under him. So I'm just bringing that out, you know? I appreciate that. I'll give you my, uh, um, I know we've got to wrap up and get you on your way soon, but just on this point of Pope Francis, I've got a theory about Pope Francis, and it's kind of a three-pronged one, and about that drives a lot of, um, you know, perspectives on either side about about his papacy. Uh, and one of those is that he's Latino, okay, and he's the first one ever. And the Latino culture, as you well know, is one that has you know a number of attributes, some of which are hyperbole and exaggeration and things like that, talking with your hands, that kind of thing. Which, you know, after papacies like Benedict and John Paul and even going further back is a kind of unusual thing to see just from a cultural standpoint. That's one that I think needs to be considered. The other one is that he's a pastoral theologian and not a systematic one. And his purpose or his area of study or focus or energy has always been on that particular individual at that particular moment in time for what's particularly good for them, given the particular situation. So that pastoral dimension is something that I think a lot of people, after great systematic theologians like Benedict and John Paul, we kind of like look at in some cases and not fully understand. And the third one is, it's the first papacy that's ever been in the, full, in the fullness of the social media world, where he sneezes and we read about it. And no pope ever has had that level of scrutiny. And so I think the combination of those things, and look, that's not excusing any of the things that, or, or defending uh, or arguing the point that you're making, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just simply uh, suggesting that those are facets of his papacy that are new and haven't existed before that we have to take into consideration. I also, my thing is, they met for 90 minutes, Biden and, and the Pope. My hope is it's 60 minutes to talk about policy of whatever kind and 30 minutes for confession. And you know what? We don't know. That may have actually happened. Yeah, and you know, and and and, and just to, you know, I just want to really emphasize that I want to be respectful to the Pope as uh, as you know the head of the church. Really, Christ is head of the church. He's the vicar, right? But the, but I would just my only counterpoint to that is, realistically speaking, he's had ample opportunity to correct publicly for the faithful, and his duty is to lead the faithful as a whole. And yes, we can say, you know, give him. I don't know how God sees him. That aside, I would just say, in your office as pope, you have this duty. You are not living out your duty. Yeah, I'm not saying you're sinning. I don't know. God knows that. 
but you're not living out your duty there. I'll leave it aside there. I'm a tech guy. I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I see your point. But look, I'm mm -hmm. saying it because someone's got to say it. That's all. And it's been on my heart to say it because no one's saying it. Well, so, I, I appreciate that. And I applaud uh, your perspective in any case on any of these issues, uh, particularly. One last thought before we get to our kind of closing segment here. Um, is your company, is Rex a Christian company or is it a company of Christians or is it neither? Yeah, so it, it is not a Christian company. It is a secular company led by a Christian because I am Christian. So I think, you know, anybody can join our company except those who hate Christianity or hate anybody because I don't hire haters. But I want to be a place at the company where anybody, man, you could be an atheist, whatever it is, you come in, you feel the love. It's not that we tolerate you, we love you. That's the idea. That's what we want to strive for, right? And I don't want to be like a conservative company or whatever, this type of political crap, you know? I want to be just a company that, hey, you're conservative, you're liberal, you're whatever, libertarian. Come on in, man. The purpose of one of the great things about business and sports, and, and people are doing their best to ruin this right now, by the way, and it really pisses me off. But one of the things about politics, but sports and business is a great place to actually get to know the other people that disagree with you because right. you're fighting alongside in a sport and business, right? Business is like a sport, super competitive. So you get in there and you, and you work with elite people and you get to know them. You know, I'll give you a little anecdote. This just happened yesterday. It's how, just give you an anecdote of how intolerant the culture is. This would be somebody I would never hire. And in fact, we're not hiring this person. Um, but what happened was this person is a very high-end tech professional, right? They get through the whole process, near the end of it, and they're talking to one of my partners, right? On the phone, or in person or something. And they had met me already. And he, he tells them, you know, he starts hearing some things thinking, I kind of bigoted against Christians and bigoted against people that disagree with him, right? There's the only types of people we don't hire because that's a cancer. Those type of people are cancer. You can't have cancers in the body. So we only have people that tolerate others or love other people, you know, can join. But this person uh, says to him, uh, you know, wait, so, you know, I, I really, I, I don't know if I can work with someone, you know, like the leader of this company because of, because they started getting this conversation and it triggered him to start thinking about other things. And he said, but what if he ever donated to Governor Abbott? Governor Abbott of Texas, right? You know, he's like, uh, I would say he's somewhat moderate, actually. So I'm like, so my, the guy in my company, who's really not really into politics at all, actually, and he's actually Hindu background. He was like, wait, hold on. Why would you have a problem with that? And the guy was like, well, I mean, how could I even work with someone who did that? No. Who, who, would, vote, who, would, who would donate <clears throat> to someone like Governor Abbott? And he said, well, what if he was a Trump supporter? Which, by the way, I, I've never been a Trump supporter. I don't, I'm not a Trump hater either, by the way. I'm just not that into politics, to be honest with you. But anyways, and Trump's kind of obnoxious and almost want to smack him in the face a couple of times. But anyways, that aside. But, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but you know, then he says, well, what about guys who are Trump supporters? Like, we don't hire anybody in this company that is intolerant to other people. We want a place where a Trump supporter feels great, and so does a supporter of Biden. And the guy's like, well, I could never work with someone who's a Trump supporter. This is an elite tech guy. I'm not saying even what he's in, because I don't want to give away who he is. But- this guy uh, in my company, a partner of mine that went to Stanford, really high-end tech guy, that's my partner, Hindu background. He's like, what the heck? He's like, this guy. So he's like, hey, look at some of these videos first of Pete online and reflect on that a little bit and call me back. So he calls him back and he says, you know, I didn't even know this guy was as Christian as he is, honestly. I, I don't think I can work with this guy. And I was like, well, you know, so he was like, wow, we dodged a bullet with this guy. Because that way. that's what's going on, though. Like these people come in, they're radicalized and they're they're intolerant. They're bigoted and mean. Mm. You know, it's like mean. It's like a new. It's like a mutation of lib. Like liberals used to be cool, man. They still are cool. The liberals I know, they're like live and let live, hippie liberals. You know, 
But there, there's a mutation of liberal that's like very in, bigoted and intolerant. Mm. And it's, it, they're very vocal and nasty. And they're, and they're getting in their own echo chamber. But they hate people. <laughs> you know, anybody that disagrees with them, they think they have monopoly on truth or something. But anyways, I'll leave it at that. I think that you make a, a really good point. And we think a lot about diversity and diversity is a hot topic right now in the whole, you know, industry, business and otherwise. But I think oftentimes people forget why diversity is meaningful, even from a secular standpoint. You never have to bring up God. The reason why it's important to have black, brown, Asian, all different kinds of people is because at least ostensibly what that means is that you're getting different perspectives. You're getting different cultures. You're getting different thought. You're getting different ideas. That's why. That's the root of why. It's not just a question of having a variety of shades of people and having them all think exactly the same way. So I think that point highlights that, which is you care about, if I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you care about diversity in the truest sense. And it begins with that diversity of opinion and, uh, and tolerance about, you know, a wide array of thought. Absolutely, Deacon. And I, you know, I'll riff on that too. Look, my wife is from Puerto Rico. We've done a DNA study. Like most of her ancestors traced back to West Africa. So that means like kids are part African, right? That means they're also from the slave trade. That's what they're, and I told my kids, you should be proud of that because you survived that and you're tough and you're good people. You means you could be hopeful in darkness. Mm. And, you know, when I, when I met with you before we, we talked really quick before we jumped on, right? I ask you, oh yeah, what's your background? You Latino, oh, where's that from? Colombia? Oh, that's cool. Good, good. Interesting. Now, where, where, where does it trace back? You said Basque, Spain. So we talked about that, right? That's a unique heritage. Now, what is it diverse about you? Is it that you have tan skin? Who the hell cares about skin color, man? What are we, bro? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, are we that superficial still? I mean, it should go down to the root of this guy. You know, this person's from somewhere different. They have a different perspective, different root. And I'm thinking, wow, that's an interesting background. You know, where you're from, what your experiences were, and who you are is true diversity. And we're mm. all a unique thought of God, as you said, right? But we have these cultural things that have influenced us over time. And I, I like to have a diverse cultural background around me, right? I work with people from like Sri Lanka, India, like different countries, right? Hand in hand, right? And we're learning. And even people from the States, man, we have a diverse culture here. Like, mm. look at all the people coming in from Mexico. They're bringing great diversity. We have a lot of Mexicans I work with. Mm -hmm. And I love Mexicans, by the way. They're awesome. They're going to lead the country. They'll be the future leadership of this country. So just do the numbers on it and you figure it out. But, and they'll just be like the Irish were, man. The Irish came in and people were spitting on them, this and that, but they worked their butt off. They had great family values and they came up, man. And that's what's going on with Mexicans too. So watch that. That's a prophecy for you right there. Absolutely. But you probably already agree well, with me. Already, yeah. <laughs> but now- I already okay. prophesied it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you will see some Mexican president coming up soon, but you know, probably more like 10, 20, 10, 10 years or so from now or so when the next, this next generation mm. gets through college and stuff. But anyways, but- this diverse, they, they come with their own background. Mexicans, beautiful background, very different. They come with their experiences and they'll see things differently. And you got to see things differently, right? So that way you can share ideas and look at it from different angles and then get to the truth because mm. everything's about the truth. Entrepreneurship is about the truth as well. You're going to invest capital in this play. Okay. Well, is that going to work or not? You know, is that a good play or not for the company? Well, how do you figure that out? You got to look at it from different angles, hear different sides of the story, get to the truth, right? Amen. I was told very explicitly that I had to get you on your way at a certain point, so I don't want to overstay my welcome. Before we get to Wait What, our final segment, how can folks keep tabs of what's going on with you, the latest, the greatest, kind of like what, what should people be paying attention to as it relates to what you're trying to build with Rex and how do they, how do they keep in touch? Well, Rex.com, that's R-E-X.com. Very easy to remember, Rex.com. Super. Yeah, yeah. So just jump on there. You'll find anything you need on there. We've got you know press release updates, this and that. 
And you also can see if you want to save your a tech talent out there, you're somebody else and you want to apply for a job, hey, come on in. If you're an investor and you want to back us, hey, we're taking investors. We're open for the first time to investors in our technology stuff. And we are gonna, we're going we're gonna to go, we're going to do our best to crush it, but also you'll be a part of a big mission and what we're working on. And, and with legit people who are elite and they're, and they're real players. And if you're, fi- if you're a fan out there and you're a supporter and you want to just back us and be a voice out there, you know, tell people about this, man. My, my major ask for anybody right now would be tell people about what we're doing. At Rex, we are disrupting big tech. We are creating new tech leadership that will be grounded in virtue and serving and empowering people. So back us up. People like you, Deacon, are critical, man. Absolutely critical. You've got a, you've got a big microphone, literally. And we need that microphone, man, speaking the truth and backing people up. Like, it's not just people like me, back other people like me too. You know what I'm saying? Like, I ain't Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I'm going out to do my part, but I need people to step up and get behind us. Well, count on me as one of those allies for sure. And know that I'll be cheering and praying for uh, God's prosperity on the vision that you actually have, because I think it's incredibly well needed. So count on that. Pete, you ready to play Wait What? Yeah, let's do it. And thank you. Thank you, Deacon. And by the way, heaven is behind us, man. So we will win. Absolutely. Amen. All right. Question number one, Pete, from what I understand, and you've already talked briefly about this, that epiphany about service through business came during a retreat in a Maronite monastery. Now in this ancient Eastern rite of the Catholic church, there's many saints, but one in particular was Simeon the elder who lived in the fourth and fifth centuries. He was a monk and ascetic who was a radical follower of Jesus Christ. And he was notable for his extraordinary spiritual direction and for the method for delivering his preaching and advice, which for nearly four decades took place in a very unusual way. What was that unusual way? Well, I would imagine it might have been through, I mean, I, first of all, I don't know this person. I know, <laughs> you know, I know Anthony of the Desert, who oh, sure, you know, was the founder sure. of Monasticism. I yeah. read a biography on him recently, actually, by Anthanasius, oh. written by another saint. Very interesting. From He was the Bishop of Alexandria at the time. That's an interesting one. And he swears at the opening of it that everything is true. And the stuff in there is phenomenal. But anyways, that's a very short bio. I'll throw that out there for the audience. But this other person, what's his name again? Simeon. The elder, Saint so, Simeon the, yeah, the elder. So, so maybe it was like he he uh, carried on his missions through his prayer, obviously contemplation, but maybe also through uh, by location or something. I don't know. That's a that's a good guess. But actually, what his unusual way was, or the unusual method was, he did it as a stylite or what's called a pillar saint. He actually lived on a column, on top of a column, on a platform, in order to contend with all this number of people who came to him for prayers and advice. It didn't give him any time to have his own private austerities. So he discovered this pillar. He built a small platform at the top of it. He determined to live out his life on that platform. And he did that on a variety of columns for 37 years, lived on top of a column and prayed and gave spiritual direction. So he was a stylite. That's the correct answer. He may have bilocated as well. Who knows? A lot of these <laughs> yeah. guys did. So uh, so not sure about that. Well, I'm, I'm definitely glad that's not my vocation. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Question <laughs> number two. Pete, you've married into a Puerto Rican family. You also talked about that, which of course makes you an honorary Boricua. So you'll do the fam proud, no doubt, by pointing out which of these is false about the beautiful U.S. Commonwealth. So which is false about Puerto Rico? Is it A, since Columbus, the island has changed its name five different times? Is it B, the Cathedral of San Jose in Old San Juan, built in 1521, is the oldest church in the Americas? Or is it C, Pope Leo X declared Puerto Rico the general headquarters of the Spanish Inquisition? Which of those is false? B. B, the Cathedral of San Jose in Old San Juan, built in 1521, is the oldest church in the Americas, and you are right. 
my friend. That is false. It Columbus. Is a, Columbus has the first one in uh, in, in uh, the Dominican Republic. Dominican. I've, I've been there. That's I'm why I know sure, that. I'm sure you have. What's that? Number 83 out of 85 countries you've been to. But yeah, it is false. It's actually just a couple years uh, younger than uh, the Cathedral of Santa Maria la Menor, which is in the Dominican Republic, which is the oldest. All right, you're batting 500. You're doing pretty good. Um, we get on to the third question, which is guaranteed to give you the give you a right answer because no, I'm batting I'm batting a thousand because I'm not counting your first one. So keep going. Okay, good. You're batting a thousand <laughs> and now you're going to be then you're, you're going to get an overage on this one because everybody gets this one right because it's a time machine. There's always a time machine question, Pete. Okay, so you get a chance to travel back in time to Rome in the year 60. Okay, there on the cobblestone streets, you encounter your namesake, Cephas, the rock, otherwise known as St. Peter. Now, you know, from all of your histor historical knowledge, which you've already displayed on this podcast, that he only has a few years left to live at that time before he's martyred. He gets martyred in 64. The church is emerging, but a lot of its practices are underground, clandestine masses, house liturgies, catacombs. In this conversation with Peter, he wonders aloud to you whether his zeal for the gospel can be better conveyed to reach more souls in the metropolis without getting more people killed in the process. He's willing, of course, to lay his life down on the line to preach Jesus. What advice, if any, do you give him? Ooh, man, that's a tough one there. That was a tough time period. That was Nero, right? He was going nuts. He was. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm such a combative person. I'd be like, you know what? You should get a militia and destroy these people. But that wouldn't be the right advice, right? The uh, <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. It's your question. <laughs> it probably wouldn't be. So <laughs> being that he's the founder of the church, right? You know, man, that's a tough one, man. But, you know, the, 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 the thinking on this, actually, and I've read a lot on this and I've been over there, but is that Paul and Peter died almost the same day, actually. They both got there after their travels. They, they traveled, and they got there, and they both were captured. Now, Paul, because he's a Roman citizen, was beheaded. But Peter was going to be crucified, and then he said, switch it upside down. Upside down. I'm not worthy. And if you go there, the one thing missing on the body under St. Peter's is the feet are missing mm. because they cut off the feet when they crucify someone. upside. You know, He was upside down, so they cut his feet off, right? So easier to get him out that way. But anyway, so the feet are missing underneath St. Peter's. Um, you know, man, that's, a, that's such a hard question, man. But basically, maybe I'd just be like, man, you got to work like crazy, man, because you only got a couple of years. I know what's up. <laughs> so you you know? let him, you'd let him know what's coming. I think he, he may have known. I mean, every day probably he knew. Yeah, I'd be like, yeah, enjoy the good life of Italy while you're also preaching like crazy because it's coming to an end fast here. But, you know, man, I'm not good on this one, am I? So I guess, you know, maybe, maybe I'd say, you know, you know, it would be cool is, Hey, can you record something, some things down? Because mm. he was clandestine. So I've read books on him because it's such a mysterious thing. After ha the first half of the Acts of the Apostles is St. Peter and the second half is all St. Paul. The first half though, after he's broken free and they had four sets of guards on him, he's broken free, he disappears, right? That's because the whole Christian community was behind that and helping to keep it secret where he was. Mm. So they don't know where he went, but obviously we have so much evidence now archeologically that he was in Rome and he was in Rome for like so long, <laughs> decades, right? In secret. Because they all wanted him, they wanted to get him. But um, I would say, you know, if you could just write something down, so we'd have more, you know, we'd have more about this. Because the next pope, or the, you know, there he was staying at the house of a niece, mm -hmm. and his sign, you know, what was his sign? His sign was the rooster. Mm -hmm. And why? Because he kept the sign of the rooster because it reminded him of two things. One, it kept him humble, his betrayal, because oh, yeah. the cock crowed twice. But the second was the rooster crows on the resurrection. Mm. So it's a sign of hope. Mm. But anyways. That works for me. That works for me. Great job. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for being on the show. Deacon Charlie, thank you. Real privilege. And in all seriousness, uh, you know, my, my great prayers are for, your, for the prosperity of your mission. So thank you very much. 
And if you're listening to our voice, I'm going to invite you to subscribe, to share this show with someone you love, help the show to grow. God bless you. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.